0: And thanks, Andrew, and thank you for being here, being a part of our worship experience today. Like Andrew said, if you're watching at home, you're catching up later, maybe you're driving along the road and you're just listening later, it's great to have you along with us, and if you're in the room, special welcome to you as well. My name is Corey, if we haven't met, and I'm lead pastor here at GFC, and I'm really excited to continue. This is actually week seven of our series called Soundtracks, which feels like, I feel like we just started it yesterday, but we've gotten seven weeks Into this, and I want to give you kind of a little just quick understanding of where we're at, how we got here, what this means. If this is your first time joining us or listening to us uh, in this conversation, and there was this book that I read last year that was called Soundtracks, and it was about this idea of what you think and what you process in your mind, how it affects how you see the world, and how you interact with your surroundings, and the choices you make, and the habits you create, and all that kind of stuff. And as we were Coming through the book of Luke, as we've been studying through that this year, we got to Luke chapter 6, and Jesus starts to talk about what is treasured in our hearts will produce the fruit in our lives. So what we treasure, and specifically when he uses that word treasure, he's using that word treasure to think about words, the truth that we believe, and how that impacts the way that we live. And so as we process that, we started to think about it and go, that makes sense, that correlates that if you store certain things in your heart and mind, you listen to things over and over again, or you believe certain truths, whether you've discovered it and you believe it, or someone taught you it, whether it was a parent or a teacher, those things are going to impact the way that you live out the rest of your days. And so the way that we've kind of framed this is we would say that the soundtrack plays a huge role in how we understand the story. And we get this. You're watching a show. You're watching a movie. The music that is behind that scene will greatly influence the way that you understand what's happening on the screen. And there are awards given. If a soundtrack is really good for a movie or you think about it and it's like it it defines, the music defines or the lack of music defines how you're supposed to feel about what you're seeing. And the same thing is true when we think about our lives. The things that we think over and over and over again are going to change the way that we process what's happening in front of us. I was reading something earlier this week and I came across something that just clicked just like this. I think it was the Marines. I have to go back and double check. I think it was the Marines. But there was this idea that any time they would go on a mission and things would go wrong, okay? So they're expecting something. Obviously, they do a lot of recon ahead of time, trying to figure out, be prepared for what's coming. They get into a situation, and all of a sudden, it's all wrong or it goes sideways or somebody, you know, something bad happens, right? What do they do? And one of the things that they do is they look at each other and they say, full benefit. What does that mean? When they say that to each other, what they're thinking is, this went wrong. There's something to be learned, There's something to grow from. There's something to figure out that's going to be different, but we can move forward in this situation. Now, you and I both know we can get into situations where everything goes wrong and we get stuck on the fact that everything has gone wrong. Right, This isn't going to work out. It's not going to go the way I thought. I put all this work into it. And if you get into that situation and you're in a life or death situation, things can get real bad real quick and you will disengage. But in this situation, they look at each other and they say, full benefit, how do we figure out how to learn the most and figure out the most in this moment? That's a soundtrack change. That's a way to say, how am I going to observe what's happening and do something good with it instead of moving in a negative direction? And so sometimes that's what we have to do. If we're believing something that's not true, especially about God or about what God says about us, we will interpret situations incorrectly, where when we understand truth and we believe that, it's going to help us understand the way that God would want us to interpret what's happening around us and what's going on in our lives. And so in Luke 6... Jesus connects that to fruit. He uses the word fruit that what we treasure will produce good or bad fruit in our lives. So we draw the line then to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, which says this, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. We've been taking one a week, and if you could guess what's highlighted there, right, that's what we're going to talk about today is goodness. Now, let me level with you for a minute. That is, of all the words on the screen, goodness is the hardest one to figure out how you're going to preach it, because we use good for a lot of different things, right? If you have a dog, my guess is you've looked at that dog and said, good boy, right? Or good girl, whatever, right? You, you, we use that. We could also say that that restaurant was really good, or that movie was really good. Or you could say this. If someone asks you, was that good? And you go, yeah, it was good. Or they could ask you, was that going to go, yeah, that was really good, right? So we use good all over the place. And there's not really a qualification for it. Like, we could be good enough or not good enough. There's, it's all over the place in our language. So when we look at that and we go, I think about a few weeks from now, I think about, like, self-control. Like, that's pretty, you know, like, I can get a direction on that pretty quick. But, like, goodness trying to figure out, okay, what does this actually mean? So I had to do a little more study and kind of figure out where does this go and, and what does this actually mean when we talk about this idea of goodness and how do we understand it with our culture and how do we understand it when Paul talks about it in Galatians 5. And so here, we're going to dive into this. Here's how we've framed it too, right? I always give us a lie. So if we're, if we're not going to do this through the Spirit, we're not going to allow the Spirit to work through us, we're probably believing a lie. So here's the lie I think we believe when it comes to this idea of being good. If I can be good, I don't have to do good. So now think about this, okay? When I leave, when my wife and I go somewhere, we're going to go on a date, right? And we leave our kids with a babysitter. What's the last thing I say to my children? Be good, right? Why do I what do I mean by that? I mean don't do bad things, right? If I come home or we come home and you they tell us you were not obedient, you didn't listen, you didn't do what you're supposed to, you're in trouble, right? So be good. That's what I tell my kids. And so we get sometimes this idea in our minds that, like, if I just be good, I don't actually have to do the good thing. Um, I was like this in middle school and high school. Here's what would happen, right? I never wanted to be the kid who got called into the principal's office or whose parents got called, okay? I knew that was not gonna go well for me at home, so I stayed away from that. But I also didn't wanna be the kid who doesn't get invited on fun things because they're the person that's gonna tell the adults what's going on, okay? So I had to toe this line of, like, figure out how to, like, hang out with the kids I wanted to hang out with, but don't actually be the one to, like, be caught red-handed, okay? So what did that lead me to? Situations where I would be present and seeing what was happening. However, I would not be the one who's actually doing the thing that was wrong, okay? So I would be kind of there, but I was was the one who I could always say I had plausible deniability, right? I didn't do it. My best example of this, and I think I may have told this story before, but I'll tell it again really fast— when we were, okay, back up. We were in high school, like maybe sophomore year. They stuck us all down in the elementary section of the school because they were building a new high school. So if you've seen Conestoga Christian School, the middle building that is now two stories high used to be only one story high. So they had to build on top of it and build it out. And they put us all on the bottom level of the elementary school in order for us to fit and have our classes. Somehow, some way, don't know how. One of the kids figured out that right above the boy's bathroom door in the hallway, there was a outlet that was kind of open. And if they reached up there and just touched one of the wires, they weren't going to get shocked, but like they could kind of jiggle the wires. um, The lady whose computer was in the office next to it, it would just shut off. So... Some of the kids would wait until, this was really bad, they would wait till she was like working on a project and then like wiggle that wire and it would just shut off in the middle and they didn't have autosave in like 2003 or whatever on that kind of computer that she had, right? Did I know this was happening? Yes. Did I have deniability? Yeah, because I couldn't reach the plug. So every other kid that was up there, they'd look at me and go, who did it? And I was like, not me. I clearly can't reach this, right? So I would just stay out of it because I couldn't get there, Okay. So I learned, right, I could be good or I could just make sure I wasn't the one doing the thing, but I wasn't doing what was good. Okay? Does that make sense to everybody? This is the idea we're talking about. And so when we think about this idea of goodness, there is an activeness or an activity that goes along with if you are, if you are having goodness as a fruit of the Spirit, that means we're doing something. We're not just staying away from the bad stuff. Okay? I have a couple of passages we're going to talk about today to kind of help us illustrate this. Here's where we're going to go first. We're going to go to Esther. Okay? So if you want to open to Esther, you can go to Esther chapter 4 is where we're going to start. Okay? And if you want to follow along on our website and get all the verses and all the notes on your phone or your tablet, you can scan that QR code, or if you can't see it, it's on the back of your Next Steps card as well. And you can follow along with me there. It's the best way to keep up with where we're going today. So in Esther 4, now let me, let me like lay the groundwork just in case you've not heard this story or you haven't read this story in a while um background is esther main character of the story gets to be a queen right there's kind of this beauty pageant thing she gets chosen by the king and so she now gets to live in the palace and be one of the queens that were there or the queen that was there so she gets to be there and she has a cousin named mordecai and Mordecai's also in government there's this other guy named haman okay so that's you need esther mordecai haman those are the kind of the big players you need to know in this story Haman makes a law that says you have to bow down to him. Mordecai says, nope, I'm a Jew. I'm not doing that. So therefore, Haman really hates Mordecai. And Haman, what you need to know about him him is that he's a really arrogant jerk. That's what you need to know, okay? And he decides that he's going to go to the king, and he says to the king, I will donate a ton of money. He's also a rich, arrogant jerk, okay? I'm going to donate a ton of money. And if, you, if I do, I want you to make this law because there are 10,000 people in your kingdom who do not listen to the rules. There were about 10,000 Jews that lived there. He says they're not going to listen to the laws. You don't want them around because they're not going to listen to what you say. So why don't you allow me to make this law, and we'll just get rid of them all. And then you won't have to worry about them. They're not a challenge to your kingdom. We can just get rid of them, okay? So the king says, well, if there's 10,000 people in my kingdom that I don't want, that, that won't listen to me and won't follow the rules, yeah, that makes sense. Let's get rid of them, okay? So this is where it gets really crazy. Haman actually figures out, and he sets a date, and there's a decree. It's, it's a date 11 months ahead of time that they're going to kill all the Jews. So if you're a Jew living in the kingdom, you basically get a note in the mail that says, by the way, you've got 11 more months, and we're going to kill all of you. It's a bad day if you're a Jew. Now, the other crazy thing is Haman, Haman, I guess he was kind of smart, too, because he, the way he set this up was it wasn't the king and the army that was going to have to come in and kill all the Jews. He wrote it up so that if you were another citizen, you were not Jewish, and you killed a Jew or a Jewish family, guess what? You got all their stuff. So now it's the kingdom's going to turn all the Jews, and the motivation is, well, if I can take out this family that I know has a lot of money, or I really like their house, or whatever, if I take them out, well, now I get their stuff. So this is kind of self-motivation, but this is why things get really dark real quick in the first three chapters of Esther. So we're going to pick it up in chapter four. It says, when Mordecai, in verses one and two, when Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on burlap and ashes— and went out into the city, crying with a loud and bitter wail. He went as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothes of mourning. And I've, I've said this before: the thing we want to know about this culture at this time, when you were upset, you didn't hide it. It's kind of normal for us sometimes. If we're upset, we want to like kind of internalize it and be like, "No, I'm fine," right? Like, unless you're with someone you really, really trust. This was not the case, right? Mordecai wants everybody to know this is a problem. Verse 3, "'And as news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was a great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, wept, wailed, and many people lay in burlap and ashes.'" So now this has spread across the whole country, and the Jews are understanding what's going to happen. Verse 4, "'When Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused.'" Then enter, Esther sent for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed as her attendant. She ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was in mourning. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace gate. Verse 7, Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of of the Jews verse 8 Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the decree issued in Susa and called for the that called for the death of all the Jews he asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her he also asked Hathak to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and to plead for her people and so we don't really know why but Esther doesn't know about this decree She didn't understand it. She didn't hear about it. She didn't know until she hears about Mordecai. And then she kind of digs in and goes, okay, what's going on? And she's got this exchange going back and forth and figuring out. And Mordecai finally goes, Esther, you have to do something. Like you've got the inside track. You know the king that made this decree. You have to go and you have to... Help, verses 9 and 10. Simply, Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Hathak to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. Verses 11 and 12. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. And so Esther kind of goes, I, I hear you, Mordecai, I get it, but here's the thing, and you know this, right? I show up in the inner court and I'm not called. This could end very badly for me. And she says, He has not called for me for 30 days. Now, married couples, if you don't talk to each other for 30 days, how are things going? Not well. Little different back then, right? Little different situation. Many of us are not kings and queens and having to deal with all this stuff and there were other probably wives and concubines, and all kinds of things involved. So this is not a apples to, this is apple to oranges, right? This isn't apples to apples. But here's the thing. She has not spoken to him recently. That tells her something. He's at least not thinking about her. He's at least not thinking, Oh, I'd like to go hang out with Esther. If they had a conversation yesterday or last week, she might think it through and go, Yeah, we left that conversation really well. He was happy, we were happy. Like, hey, you know what, I think it'll be fine. But for a month, she's had no interaction. She lives in the same palace. Her mind is kind of like, I, I don't know where he's at. This may not go well. Verse 13, Mordecai sent his reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the, in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. 14, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this, right? And that's the famous verse we know from Esther. So Mordecai says, you, you may not be as safe as you think if you just hang out in the palace. So what are you going to do? Are you willing to kind of take the risk in order to help other people? And so here's, here's the first thing I want us to understand about goodness. Goodness aggressively pursues good for others. So Esther has this choice. She can keep her mouth shut. She can maybe just kind of hide in the palace. She didn't even know about the decree, right? She, she, she might be good just hanging out where she is. Or things could go sideways, but she's taking her life in her hands to go before the king and to say, this decree, by the way, this is the conversation. The decree you made is wrong, king. How old do you think that goes normally? You have to change this. This is a request that is not small. And yet, if we read the rest of the story, we're not going to read the rest of the story, but if you did and if you know the story, she goes before the king, and that changes everything. She has a couple of banquets. Haman ends up the one who's dead, not the Jews, and everything kind of works out. But goodness aggressively pursues good for others. When we see moments and things where we can have an influence, we're able to step into a gap. We're able to advocate for somebody. We're able to go and do something and we don't do it, that's not goodness. Goodness says, I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to do what I can do in order to pursue good for other people. So the question is, how aggressively are we looking to do good for others? We're going to jump now to John chapter 2. Okay, we're going to bounce around a little bit today. John chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 13. Verse 13. So this is what it says. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem in the temple area. He saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Now, before we get there, I want to help us understand this. It was not rare for people to come to Jerusalem and need to buy animals to do their sacrifices. This is what they had to do. And it was easier, obviously, to travel, then buy the animal, and sacrifice it rather than travel with the animal. So it was not abnormal for there to be animals that were for sale in order to sacrifice. But here's the problem. So money changers here. And what's happening is people are gouging the people that have traveled there and need to buy these animals and exchange their money in order to buy those animals. So you're kind of getting doubled down. You're, you're getting a bad exchange rate. So your money is not worth as much as their money or their money is worth more than your, whatever you, however you want to say it. So you have a bad exchange rate and then you're getting overcharged for the animals. So people are taking advantage of the idea that these people have to buy these animals from us. They have nowhere else to go. So why don't we raise the prices? It's like when you go to a sporting event and everything costs like a million more dollars, Right. It just happens. why Beck and I are stopping at Wawa on the way to Philly's game today because we're not going to pay what they do at stadiums, right? So that's what's happening. But here's the even greater issue. This isn't just a choice. This isn't just, oh, I'm going to a ball game or something. I feel like I'm going to spend a little bit more. No, this is what they have to do in order to worship God and fulfill the law. So now you're taking advantage of people that their understanding of their standing with God is at stake if they don't pay for these things and people are giving them a bad exchange rate and then overcharging them for these animals. So in verse 15, Jesus made a whip and some ropes out of some ropes and chased them out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor and turned over the tables. Then in verse 16, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, "Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. In verse 17, then the disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. So it's always cool when you see that the disciples kind of get this connection to a previous passage and they see Jesus fulfill it right in front of their eyes. And this is one of those passages, it's kind of like fun to read, but it's really weird because it's not typical what you think of when you think of Jesus. I mean, he he makes a mess. He goes after these people. He flips all their stuff over. I mean, like, do to your neighbor what you would want them to do to you. It's like, would Jesus want? It's kind of like one of these weird situations where you get this edge to Jesus. And when we get this prophecy that the passion of God's house will consume him, he was willing to protect God's house no matter what. Like, he was willing to do things that didn't seem normal in order to protect it. And here's the second thing I want us to understand about goodness. Goodness will not allow evil to persist in its presence. So, so we have this aggressive doing good for other people, but we also have this aggressive understanding of when there is evil, we will not allow it to continue. That we would step in and say, what's wrong here? The oppression that's happening, whatever it might be, we're going to jump in and we're going to say, as far as it depends on me, it's going to stop. Now, sometimes we can't do anything other than call 911, right? But are we willing to make that phone call? What are we willing to do in that moment? Um, as a dad and as, as a husband, I'm, I'm sure the other dads and husbands in the room probably feel the same way. We, we kind of are on the watch sometimes for what's going on. Like we're trying to figure out, like make sure our family is safe. And so at times we will survey the area and kind of say, okay, if something goes wrong, what do I need to do? How do I need to do it? And if somebody starts acting weird, we just start watching that person, right? We're just kind of keeping an eye on them so that we know that our wives and our families are safe. And I remember there was a time a couple years ago where we were, it was after one of Owen's baseball games, and we're heading to the car, and I just start to hear like yelling behind me. And it wasn't like happy yelling, it wasn't just people laughing too loud it was angry yelling and i just remember looking at back and saying let's get everybody in the car right and we just like put everybody in the van and we shut the doors we didn't even buckle the kids we just said get in the car and we shut the doors and we watched as like this fight broke out amongst parents like in front of us it was crazy and so in that moment, what did I do? I was just like, let's just move. Let's get our family where we need to go. Now, here's what I didn't do. I did not get out and jump in front of the two guys that were taking swings. I wasn't getting that involved. But I was going to make sure that the people that I was responsible for, that God had entrusted to me, were going to be safe in that moment. And so as far as it depended on me, we made sure that. And then afterward, I texted one of the people that was a commissioner, like, what do we need to do? Do we know about this? Have the right people been called so that we can make sure this doesn't happen again? And so there was a follow-up there, but what do we do when we know something wrong is going to happen, or we know something bad is happening, how do we interact with that? And there's not always an easy answer, but to look the other way is always the wrong answer. And so if we won't allow evil to persist in our presence, that's one of the ways that we are able to actively do good and not allow that bad thing or that practice or whatever it might be to continue to happen. Last verse for today, our last passage. We're going to go to Ephesians 5. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. Ephesians 5, verse 8 and 9 says this. For once you were were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is what? Good and right and true. Remember, Galatians 5, where we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, says, hey, allow the Spirit to work through you. These are the things that are going to happen. It says if you have the Holy Spirit, you've got this light in you, and that light produces what is good. That's our word, right? Good and right and true. Verses 10 through 12. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord and take no part in worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. Pause there, right? Think about that for a minute. How is he, how's he leading this passage? He's saying what we have, if we have the Holy Spirit, is we have this light that produces good and right and true. Then there's this other side where it says, don't have anything to do with these bad things, but the light is supposed to expose them. It says it is shameful to even talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. And then in verses 13 and 14 it says, but their evil intentions will be exposed when what? When the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. So here's what we have to know, right? How do you understand what light does to darkness? Well, light has to actually have conversation with the darkness. It has to, uh, it has to approach the darkness. It has to not stay in the light. And he- here's where we get stuck, okay? Here's where we get stuck, I think, especially on this. We will at times, because sometimes we were taught as kids how do you be a good christian well you read your bible and you pray and you go to church and you do this and you don't hang out with people who don't do that right you be good don't do the things you're not supposed to do but then what do we do with this passage where it says you have the light and the light is supposed to expose the darkness how do we do that we have to do good it's not, a, it's not a defensive stance of just be good and follow all the rules and things like that. Like we have to go and do it. It has to be something where we see people that need to have good done with them, and we would aggressively pursue that. We see evil persisting, and we would aggressively pursue getting rid of that evil, that we would do good in the world. And here's the thing, verse, or sorry, number three that I want us to understand about goodness is that goodness desires others know goodness as well. Here's how I want us to kind of think and maybe process this. Um, In order to be a healthy, in order to reach people for Jesus, you have to be a healthy Christian. Now, what does that mean? We all know unhealthy Christians. They'll complain. They'll be upset about things. They're never happy. They're always, right? It's just we think about the joy of the Lord, and you might want to say to them, do you know Jesus? Because you don't have the joy of the Lord. Like, we have to think that through. What does that look like? And when people see that, when they see an unhealthy Christian, when other people that don't know Jesus see an unhealthy Christian, that's a problem. But here's what happens when we're what I would call a healthy or a balanced Christian is we understand who God is and we understand who we are. When we understand who God is and his role in our lives and what that means and we understand who we are and what role He has given us and what he wants us to pursue and who he wants us to be then we can go to people that don't know him and the goodness that we want to show them will help them understand how good God is. But if we get stuck in this idea of I'm just going to be good, we miss it. Because then other people don't experience the goodness we have. And so it's our job to say, this goodness that I understand is how I'm going to pursue other people and not just how i'm going to be good on my own and here's uh, this this is just stuff. maybe maybe you grew up with this i grew up with this dichotomy that doing good is measured in achievement and so what i would say is doing good is not measured in achievement what did i do how do i make sure i check off all my lists how do i make sure that i'm being good this is what god wants me to do he wants me to be good but actually i think it's this that doing good is measured in impact how did, I, how did I love that person? Because here's what we can get stuck to. You could set a goal or I could set a goal and say, I want to lead five people to Jesus this year, right? That would be great and amazing. But what happens when you have 30 gospel conversations with some with people and no one says yes? What do we start to think if our soundtrack is I need to be good? I'm not good. I didn't do what I was what I wanted to do. I didn't achieve it. I must not be a good follower of Jesus. I must not be good at this. I must not be, right? We start to think that way, but what was the impact of all those conversations? Yes, five people didn't necessarily decide to follow Jesus, but 30 people now know what it means to make that decision and how to do it. That's an impact, and so we can't always measure it and say, I'm going to see results, or I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to check off the box, But am I pursuing that goodness? Am I trying to make an impact? Am I trying to make sure that as far as it depends on me, that people are going to see good done and that I'm going to get rid of the evil when I see it? So here's a reminder, right? Here was our lie. If I can be good, I don't have to do good. But here's the truth. I prove what I believe when I do what is good. So if we believe good needs to be done... Do we do it? Because if not, then I'm not proving what I believe. I'm just giving lip service to what I'm supposed to believe. And so if we think this, if we say I prove what I believe and I do what it, is good, if we see what needs to be done and we understand it as the good that needs to be done but we're not willing to do it, we don't really believe that it's good or that that's what goodness looks like. And here's the cool thing I want us to understand about this is that the biblical understanding of goodness is a form of excellence. If you think back to Genesis, when God's creating the world. What does he say? Created it, and it was good. The first time he says it's not good is when man is by himself. So guess what, ladies? You're the fulfillment of excellence and goodness, okay? You can say that. Because God says, I, Adam needs a partner. So Adam comes along, or Eve comes along. But when he says that, it's, it's not this empty, it's not like God looked at it and went, that's good enough. That's pretty good. I'll keep it, right? No, it's this excellence, this idea that, that this was goodness fulfilled. And so when we do this, it's a form of excellence. Nobody says, I'm just going to keep my hands clean and says that's excellence, right? There's an activity to it. There's a pursuit of what we need to do. And that's when we pursue something is when we create excellence. Um, I have a picture I'm going to put up and i um, Patrick's going to put up, not me. Um, we're going to put up on the screen and I'm not going to give you any context. I want to see just by the picture, if you know who she is. Okay. And if, if you do, you can tell me, all right, Patrick, you can go ahead and put the, put the picture up. Does anyone know who that is? Okay, great. This is going perfectly. All right. So here's the person. Here's the point. This woman's name is Meep Gies. Now, does anyone know who that is now? I got a handful. Yeah. Meep Gies, if you don't know the story, okay, she was one of the most instrumental individuals who hid the Frank family during World War II. So she was, there's a, by the way, there's a series out, Beck and I just watched it, that's why this is fresh in my head, it's on Disney+, Plus. it's called A Small Light, Okay. Worth watching, really good, okay? So we were watching this and I started doing some research and I was like, how true is this? And they were actually really, really true to the regular story, okay? So here's what her role was. Uh, Anne Frank's dad was her boss. And when uh, Anne Frank's older sister got called to go to a work camp, Anne Frank's dad comes to Meep, I know, weird name, and says, will you help us, will you hide us? And she said yes. And she goes down this two-year path of providing resources and getting food and making sure that they're protected. None of you know who she is. But she did what was good. And I don't know what her relationship with Jesus was. One of the articles I read in doing some research said she was Roman Catholic. So I don't know. Maybe she was a follower of Jesus. We don't don't know for sure. But what did she do when she had the option— Everybody else, most people in her context who weren't Jewish at the time, what did they do? They kind of just said, that's over there. That's their problem. I'm good. I'm going to stay out of it. I don't need to do it. But when he came and asked, she said, no, I'll do it. And she wasn't standing out in the street with a gun, right, trying to fight off the Nazis. But she just said, as far as it depends on me, I'm going to do what's good. And so she hid them. She made sure that she pursued aggressively goodness for these families, and she made sure as far as it depended on her, she would not allow evil to get to. And then even this, this is crazy. I thought they threw this into the show. Sorry, I'm like ruining it. They threw this into the show, but it was actually what happened. When they were found, if you know the story, if you've ever read the Diary of Anne Frank, right? When they were found, she went down to the SS office and tried to bribe them to give them back to her. Like she went after, I was like, that's got to be added. Nope, she did it. She was nuts in a really good way. And she's the one who hid the diary, who grabbed the diaries. That's why we have the book today. So she was willing to do what was good and not just be good, but to aggressively pursue it and make sure, as far as it depended on her, evil was not going to persist in her presence. So here's what I want us to understand. Last thing, and then I have one question, and we'll pray. Goodness is proven in the tension between what I believe and what I do would it meet belief that these people do not deserve to be killed because they're from another country or because they have different lineage so what did she do she protected them she was willing to do what she believed and goodness whether if we're willing to do it not just be good but to do good is proven in the tension between what i believe and what i will actually do so here's the question to wrap us up what will i choose when I have the opportunity to be good without doing good. We're all going to come to crossroads where we can say, I'm good, right? Hang on over here. My nose isn't dirty. I'm not tall enough to reach the light thing that we jiggle and make the computer turn off, right? So if I just stay over here, I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm not going to be, that's not a problem for me. But that's not what goodness is. Goodness says I'm going to do something. I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to stop it. I'm not just going to sit and be silent while it happens. So what's this question, when you come to these moments, are we willing to step out and do good and not just be good? Would you pray with me? God, when we use this word good all the time, it can kind of lose some of its understanding, and it's definitely not the way that we necessarily The way that you've used it in scripture is not the way that we understand it um, in our context. But I ask that you would make it clear to us when we have the opportunity to do good and not just be good. The temptation is always going to be, I don't have to get involved. I don't have to get my hands dirty. If I just stay out of it, I'm fine. I didn't do the wrong thing, so I'm going to be good over here. But that's not what you're calling us to. And so I ask when we have the opportunity to do good, you would make it absolutely clear to us that we would find what it means to pursue aggressively good for other people, that we would stop evil from persisting when it's in our presence and that we would want other people to know what goodness is and we would invite them into that, that we would know we would be able to share with them how good you are and that we would encourage others to take that step as well. We pray that we would not just do that individually, but that we would do that as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen.